0: Welcome back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. This week, we're talking with Sally Hubbard. Sally is a senior editor at the Capital Forum, where she primarily covers antitrust issues. Sally was a featured panelist at this year's IPLJ symposium, speaking on the topic of safeguarding information integrity in the era of fake news. Sally is also the founder and host of the Women Killing It podcast, where she interviews women at the top of their careers about what has worked for them, how they got where they are today, and what they wish they knew earlier. Sally and I chatted about the relationship between consolidated market power and gender and racial inequality. Enjoy. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome. And as um, our listeners might know, because we posted a couple weeks back on the symposium panel about fake news, which Sally, you, you talked a lot about. And honestly, I think that was just sort of our entryway to talking about antitrust, because I know you have sort of some theories about how antitrust can mitigate the issues that we're dealing with with the fake news. I guess we can call it an epidemic. It's kind of an epidemic at this point. But we can get into that a little bit later. I want to talk first about sort of your career path because I just get really – first of all, I get really interested in stuff like this. I'm about to graduate. So I was just curious if you could talk a little bit about how your path evolved sort of before and then after school and what your thought process was.
1: Sure. I would say the beginning – wasn't the beginning of my legal career was not optimal but you know you learn from everything that you do because uh, I went to law school because I wanted to be a women's rights lawyer and I very quickly learned that I was going to have a lot of debt <laughs> and that there really weren't that many jobs as a women's rights lawyer in fact you know my dream job at the time it was called the Now Legal Defense Fund I know they have a different name and I'm forgetting what it is But I realized they employed six attorneys and they were all Yale graduates that had about 20 years experience. (laughs) So I had this pretty big wake up call. I think it was my first summer when I was trying to get internships and I was just basically like begging nonprofits to let me volunteer at them. And I couldn't even I was having a really hard time doing that. And now in retrospect, I understand Um, Having managed interns myself, that it requires resources, and if you're thinly staffed, you don't have the resources to be training and managing interns. So I get it now, but I quickly got disillusioned and realized I had a lot of debt and that my dream of being a women's rights lawyer might have to get put on hold for a bit. And I started off at a big law firm, which going into it I knew wasn't the right fit for me. I like to tell the story of my grandfather when I my grandfather had a very deeply held belief that you should enjoy your life and I told my grandfather you know I'm going to do this job and it's just going to be for a year and I was all excited to, sh- to kind of impress my grandfather that I was going to make $125,000 right out of law school this was back in 2002 and I said I'm not going to like it but I'm just going to do it for a year and my grandfather looked at me and said it's going to be a long damn year <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's like he knew <laughs>
1: <laughs> he did not approve at all. Like I thought maybe he'd be impressed that I was making all this money. like he did he completely did not approve, and I really did not enjoy the year. I mean, it was a learning experience, good training. You do get very good training at those big law firms in terms of just knowing high levels of you know high standards. So I don't regret it, but I did only last a year. It was a year and a day to be precise. And then I went on a series of jobs trying to find my spot in law, and I had a lot of jobs in a short period of time. I'm not going to lie; I think it was six jobs in five years.
0: That's, I mean, that I'm coming from. I mean, I have friends who bounce around. I think that's. I mean, honestly, I feel like that's sort of the new normal. I, I don't, I, I seldom see people who stay at one place for an extended period of time. Yeah, at I least th- in.
1: I think it's a lot more common now. Back then, so I graduated from law school in 2002. Back then it certainly wasn't that common in the legal field. But now I think just the way the economy is changing and the gig economy and everything else, I think it's a lot more common. But I worked I went from working at the big law firm. I was a staff attorney at the DC circuit, which I actually did really like except didn't like DC. I was still had the wanted to get back to New York. I worked at a small law firm that was plaintiff side employment discrimination. Then I taught legal writing at New York Law School. And then I landed at the New York Attorney General's office in the Antitrust Bureau. And that was a great job. I stayed there for almost seven years. I was hired by Elliot Spitzer. And then I worked there during the Cuomo administration into the beginning of the Schneiderman administration.
0: So how did you end up transitioning from that into, you're at the Capitol Forum, you're a journalist now. Yes. So
1: I was in the Antitrust Bureau at the New York AG's office. So I was enforcing antitrust laws. And when I was on maternity leave for my second child... You know, I always say you put, a, you put an A-type woman on maternity leave and you never know what's going to happen. I decided to start a web startup. <laughs> so so I, was, I started a web startup. It was called The Parent Maze. And like many web startups, it failed. I learned a tremendous amount, though, so I have zero regrets about that. But then I found myself thinking I need a paycheck and I've done everything in law, big firm, small firm, government <laughs> taught, what am I going to do next? And um, also the economy wasn't in a great spot. So I was getting a little bit stressed because my training, you know, my qualifications at that point was I was a pretty senior attorney with 10 years of antitrust experience, litigation and antitrust experience at that time. And there was no one hiring for that. All the job listings were five years experience. So, so it's such an interesting thing about the legal profession. It gets harder to get a job the more experience you have sometimes. So I started getting really nervous. And then I actually talked to my life coach, who I adore, and tried to figure out what it was I was looking for, Jill Richberg. If you ever need a life coach, highly recommend. And I had four sessions with her. And the next day, I found this job with the Capital Forum. The company was brand new. They were less than six months old a new business model that had never existed. They were hiring antitrust lawyers to write about antitrust as journalists. It was crazy. And I was like, I have no I really didn't even understand what a job I was signing up for because I had no journalist experience. So I figured that I would just be analyzing the information and that my bosses that were hiring me who were well connected in DC and politics would be the ones gathering the information. But no, that was not the case at all.
0: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yes.
1: So I had a, you know, kind of thrown in to learning how to be a journalist. And it was a harsh transition from having the subpoena power at the New York AG's office to having to
0: just beg people to give me information for no real good reason. It's it's definitely got to be like a different dynamic. I think we talk, we we hear, you know, of course, in the political climate now, everyone talking about getting subpoenaed, and you have to obviously you're you're legally required to comply, but it's pretty different than you're voluntarily talking to someone and sharing some information oh, yeah. that you want to be out there, and it's just totally different. Uh, oh yeah, power dynamic even I think too. Yeah, it's
1: going from having tremendous power to having zero power. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, the first time I felt power was when I first started the New York Attorney General's office, and I had to call a partner at Skadden to tell him that we were serving a subpoena on his client, and given that I was still kind of young at that point, I was actually nervous to be calling this partner at Skadden, and I got his voicemail, I left a message, and literally within five minutes, he called me back and was like, how can I help you?
0: Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I was like,
1: this is what power feels like? No wonder people like it. <laughs> And then I went to being a journalist when you have to, you know, reach out to 100 people to get two people to talk to you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I want to shift now, I think, to really what I, we want it to be really the center focus of this conversation. So your focus, as we mentioned, is on antitrust and, uh, you know, talking earlier about uh, your interest in women's rights and sort of the theory that there's definitely a nexus of these two subjects, um, and they're very intertwined. But before we do that, maybe sort of more foundationally, so what's the current doctrinal regime regarding antitrust law?
1: The current doctrinal regime regarding antitrust law was heavily influenced by the Chicago School of Economics. So this has been going on for the last, like, 30 years, And in fact, we just recently had a conference where the professor Tim Wu, the Columbia law professor who coined the term net neutrality, was speaking, and he used the phrase, um, antitrust has been on a starvation diet for the last 30 years. And I thought that was such an appropriate way to describe what's been happening with antitrust. And it was driven by kind of Ork and the Chicago School Economics uh, movement which focuses primarily on whether like if you're evaluating a merger, you're looking at whether it's going to cause high prices, whether it's going to create efficiencies, not looking at kind of the big picture of market structure and competition, but much more um, economically focused. And so if you can't show that the prices are going to go up, then everything is A-OK under the antitrust law, the way that it's currently being interpreted. But if you look at the history of antitrust law and even the purposes for which it was enacted, it was about concentrated power. And you, there's a quote from Senator Sherman when he was introducing the Sherman Act, which is the one of the main antitrust laws, saying, you know, if we would not bear a king of trade, I mean, a, a king as a political power, we won't, we shouldn't bear a king uh, of trade. And there's a great article by Lena Khan that pointed this out to me called, Amazon's antitrust paradox. Mm -hmm. And she talks about how Amazon has been able to pretty much avoid antitrust enforcement because it continues to offer low prices. So we've gotten to a state where because of this lax enforcement and this filter through which antitrust law has been put, uh, we have a highly consolidated economy at this point.
0: And do you think that that sort of like you were saying about how Amazon continues to offer low prices, we have you know, Walmart offering really, really low prices and everyone being on Facebook and sort of this pop consumer high level of consumer popularity that I think continues to sort of drive this idea of, well, you know, everybody uses this. It's like it's in such widespread use. I mean, do you think that that's sort of what's behind maybe the, the lack of um, regulation?
1: Yes, because the standard that's being used uh, that was it, advocated by the Chicago School is called the consumer welfare standard and it's being very narrowly applied consumer welfare is basically meaning price instead of looking at all the other things that a consumer sh- should care about like choice, quality, maybe you know a consumer is also an employee and maybe they want to have some bargaining power in an economy that's not so consolidated, or maybe they are a, work for a company that sells products to Walmart or Amazon and doesn't want to be getting squeezed by their market power so that suppliers get squeezed when they're having to sell to giants like this, and then they pay less to their employees. So a consumer is also an employee. So it's been this very narrow focus on this consumer welfare standard, but then also a very narrow aspect of what a consumer's welfare is about, which is just prices.
0: So consumer in like the very narrow, like you're buying things versus the broader look at like a consumer is just a person in this economy that has lots of different roles in it.
1: Exactly. And I mean, if you're buying things, if you're only looking at, okay, well, they're getting low prices, but not looking at, well, your wages have gone down because of the concentration in the economy. What sense does that make? It makes no sense.
0: And you actually, you recently wrote an article for Forbes talking about antitrust and sort of how it plays into the gender and I think racial even inequalities. Um, So how, and I guess also why do you think that those current power concentrations are impacting those inequities?
1: Yeah, so there's been people, a lot of people, including Senator Elizabeth Warren, academics like Lena Khan, Zephyr Teachout. A lot of people who have been making this connection, Zephyr, Zephyr, who is a professor at Fordham. She is. Yep. um, And and I've been heavily influenced by her scholarship. You know, a lot of people who are making the ties between antitrust, you know, consolidation and income inequality. Right. Because this issue of income inequality has been a big problem that everyone's been focused on. The 99 percent, the growing gap between the rich and the poor. And I actually hadn't seen anyone making the connection to gender and and racial inequality. And of course, anything that affects income inequality, anything that amplifies income inequality is also going to amplify gender and racial inequality because the people who are going to be at the top are not going to be women and people of color, right? (laughs) You know, we already have huge wage disparities between women and and people of color and white men. So if those general wage disparities are getting worse, women are going to be especially hit hard as well as people of color. So I wanted to make that connection. And part of it was actually my own struggles because this last year has been such a busy year for someone like me who specializes in antitrust and tech platforms on one hand and women's issues on the other with my my podcast, um, Women Killing It. And I kept telling myself, there's too much going on. It's been such a busy year. Like everything is blowing up. I need to pick one mm-hmm. of these passions. I can't do both of them. And that is when it finally hit me that they were actually the same passion. And it was really just about preserving the American dream and equal opportunity, whether it be for a small company going up against a big incumbent, in antitrust, or whether it be for someone who's at the bottom of the hierarchy wanting to have an opportunity to compete on the merits.
0: It's amazing. And you actually you spoke on a panel before the I believe the Congressional Antitrust Caucus about this.
1: Yeah, it was very exciting because I wrote this article um, making this connection between monopolies and gender inequality. And I wasn't sure how it would be received. There's a lot of people advocating for a very narrow view of antitrust. Most of the people are on the payroll of big corporations. (laughs) It was very exciting because you know, I wrote the article and then they reached out to me and said they wanted to make a whole panel on the topic of monopolies and inequality. So that was super exciting to see it immediately have some sort of an impact. And and this Antitrust Caucus, which is a newly formed group in the House of Representatives, being interested in this was was super exciting.
0: So do you think there are any specific policy changes or even I know sort of difficult with this administration, but legislative action that could be taken that maybe would move the needle on this issue?
1: Yeah, I mean, I actually think that if you enforce the antitrust laws the way that they're intended to be enforced and not all through this filter of only looking at low prices, and if there was adequate enforcement, that it would solve a lot of these problems. There are a lot of people who are worried that there's this new interpretation of antitrust law they've tried to stigmatize it using the term hipster antitrust this apparently in dc is an insult (laughs) i kind of understand why i mean (laughs) i don't know i live in brooklyn and i'm like i would love for someone to call me a hipster believe me they don't (laughs) hipsters don't think that i'm cool enough to hang out with them so i think it's hilarious that that is like an insult to call someone a hipster antitrust but, what I believe is not actually that you need to rewrite the antitrust laws drastically in some kind of total new way of thinking about things. I think you just need to get back to the roots of antitrust and its original intention and what it was even before like the seventies you know um if you enforce the antitrust laws and you don't have such a highly consolidated economy, there will be more opportunities for women and people of color. I mean, it's just the more concentrated power is, the harder it's going to be for women and people of color to break through those glass ceilings.
0: How do you think, I mean, what would be a, the sort of starting point for that type of enforcement? I mean, if we're if we're not really talking about like a big, we're just, we're really more talking about a policy enforcement change versus something I think that might be bigger for people. So I think a better thing is to look at one main obstacle
1: for enforcers who do want to be aggressive is that there's been there was a series of case law that came out. A lot of them, the decisions were in the 90s that really made it harder for antitrust enforcers to bring monopolization cases. Those are cases under Sherman Act Section 2. There's a lot of bad precedent. You know, we used to have causes of action like predatory pricing and with predatory pricing there's a recruitment test which says that you can price below your cost and make it impossible for anyone to compete as, against you as long as you never recoup those profits which is exactly what amazon has done so anyone who's trying to bring a predatory pricing case has to show recruitment which is very hard to do and a lot of times there's not recruit recoupment Companies that are huge conglomerates might lose money on one product forever and use that as a way of drawing in business on other products. You know, Amazon can never make money on books, and it's fine. Amazon actually doesn't need to make money on anything because it's being completely floated by investors. So there's some legal standards. An example is predatory pricing, and as I mentioned, Lena Khan's article goes into great detail about that. Other standards that could be fixed, there was a case called Matsushita that made it really hard to bring uh, monopolization cases and the monopoly leveraging cases because it says in order to kind of show that a monopolist is leveraging their monopoly to take over a second market that's adjacent to it, which is what these monopolists do. They take their primary market and they leverage it to take over another market like we saw in the Microsoft case in the 90s. They took the operating system monopoly to try to take over the browser market. The standard now is that you have to show a likelihood of success in taking over that second market, and the way that the courts look at that is if you have greater than a 50% share of that second market. At that point, it's way too late. So there's some case law that could be fixed. So a legislative fix would be to look at some of these cases that are making it really hard to prevail on a monopolization case and and changing those those legal standards so that enforcers will feel more confident about their chances of succeeding. That would be a good first step.
0: On the other side of the coin, too, I think maybe there might be, I don't know, you know, again, this is sort of not really sort of antitrust, but more looking at private actors and fixes sort of on the interior of these companies and even big firms regarding diversity and inclusion and moving people up to the higher levels. I mean, I've actually worked in diversity and inclusion, and I know it's sort of a slow road arriving at a level of more equity at the top levels. But do you think that maybe promoting competition could address sort of stagnation on a lot of these initiatives? You know, I
1: think the more free and open our our economy is, the greater chances women and people of color will have of ascending to the top ranks of companies. Because if you have right now, we have these huge companies with gigantic market cap dominating their industries. They are going to be very conservative and status quo oriented and keeping white men at the top. Right? So if you have a much more dynamic economy with new firms that are coming in and challenging the incumbents, I think you're going to have greater opportunities for women and people of color at the top. I also think there is, you know, a parallel between monopolization and these issues that we have with, with diversity and inclusion. You know, I've in my article that the glass ceiling is really just a cartel, right? It's a, a cartel of of white men. So that's a common thread between enforcing anti-monopoly law and breaking up the monopolies that we have in the C-suite and the boards of directors and at the top levels of companies. Um, But I do just think the more dynamic your economy is, the more opportunities there will be for uh, women and people of color to ascend to the top.
0: You interviewed, I think, I'm, I'm trying to remember which episode it was. It was a recent episode where you were speaking with two women who were with, I think, a venture capital firm. I'm trying to I'll remember in the show notes, I'm sure, their names. It's okay. I I can tell you. It's Victoria Fram and Allie Burns. Yeah. Oh, my god. With Village Capital. So great. It was a great conversation. You know, I was thinking about, and I think you even wrote in your article about the idea that there are sort of these ideas that are out there that if you don't have other women picking up on them and, like, you know, even investing in them – I mean, that's sort of how these, these projects get going.
1: Right. And another big monopoly is the venture capital world. I mean, if you look at the percentage of funding that women and people of color get, it's very, very bad um, <laughs> in terms of, you know, the funding that they get to start their companies. And so that's why I was so excited with what Village Capital is doing. They've invested in a, a bunch of different startups, and 40% of their startups are either founded by women or have a female co-founder. And they're also investing in different parts of the country because right now we also have kind of uh, investing monopolies in San Francisco and New York. And there's all these people in the rest of the country that have ideas to bring to bear. And, you know, it's just a lot of missed opportunities, a lot of missed potential, and missed economic growth by the kind of very concentrated way that money is given for new firms. So
0: just we need to have more female venture capital firms. <laughs>
1: I know. I know. I keep scratching my head being like, how does one big home of these? How Maybe does,
0: I know. I, we, <laughs> I, don't, I have some friends in San Francisco. Maybe I'll ask. And see I one. should have asked.
1: I should have, I'll, I can ask Allie and Victoria. Um, <laughs> I know. But- I think that I've been hearing about a lot of new firms that are sprouting up. So that's great because it, you hear these stories and I heard it time and time again on my podcast that these blinders, these blind spots when you only have, when you don't have diversity in the table and making investing decisions and making any kind of business decision leads to worse business
0: outcomes. Right. You know? Right. Well, and, you, and I think you talked a little bit too about the idea that, I mean, even just the simple one, which I know people have mentioned this idea that when you have, when you have a diverse decision-making team on any decision, it doesn't matter, you know, it can be really anything, but the idea that like, just having all of those perspectives at the table just leads companies and firms to just make better choices. Exactly. Exactly. And, and
1: when it comes to any business decision and then also with investing, obviously the thing that I've seen is when you had the white male investors, they would primarily invest in companies where they could see the market need so if you're starting a company that serves only women or serves a need that's mostly experienced by people of color, they don't see it at all. So I had a, a woman on my podcast named Lynn Perkins who was a co-founder of Urban Sitter, and she had to go out and prove traction in order to get funding, because the VCs just didn't get how what a pain in the butt it is to hire a babysitter, right? <laughs> and um, the founder of Village Capital was telling me a story about a startup company that was selling a product dealing with, um, I think it was razor bumps. I, I'm not remembering exactly. It had something to do with bumps on the skin. And it was something that was experienced most frequently with by African-American men. And the white DCs didn't get it. There was a story recently also about breast pumps, a new breast pumps not being able to get funded. And like there's these great new inventions for a much more improved breast pump, and it can't get funded. Have you had, have you had women at the table believe me they would be like innovate that please
0: (laughs) i was gonna say i'm not i don't have kids but i mean i i understand there's definitely i can't i half the population is women why would there not be a market for this that's like just math you could just sit down and do the numbers
1: I know. Plus, women control the purse. I mean, we spend 80% of household spending, so it it really doesn't make any
0: sense. So I actually, um, on a sort of more basic level, and again, I'm going to put this in our notes, but everyone should absolutely listen to Sally's podcast, Women Killing It. I've been inspired just listening to it. I've really enjoyed your conversations with these women. It's just fantastic, and it's amazing to hear about their paths and, you know, their perseverance over time and it's just been really wonderful I think to soak up that wisdom and I think encouragement too every conversation I think I listened to it was just really like encouraging each other I think to, to keep going and to keep striving and doing your, your best and to keep forging ahead even with what we I think have acknowledged are some obstacles so what have some of the common themes been in your conversations
1: there have been a lot of common themes, one of the biggest things is just being uncomfortable, taking risks. It's all easier said than done, but you know I think women too much are kind of trained to follow the rules. I don't think that there's any kind of general stereotype that women are risk averse, but certainly that's the thing I keep hearing over and over again like don't be afraid to be uncomfortable, go towards the discomfort. <laughs> Um, I do think we put more expectations on ourselves for perfection. And I think that's largely a result of the world that we live in, that we can't just show up and do a C job and get a credit the way sometimes white men can. (laughs) So you see this kind of preparation gap uh, where women prepare a lot more for things, but I think we need to get ourselves off the hook and, and realize we don't have to be perfect. We can take the chance. We don't have to know all the answers. Another common thread is asking for help. A lot of women, it's just not our, you know, we're kind of, I guess, socialized to be helpers, not to ask for help. So if you're building your robust network, which you should be doing from day one, don't just build that network, but go to that network and ask for help sometimes. The, on the point of building a network, that was something that I learned way too late in life. And it was part of that transition to being a journalist where I actually had to network for the job in order to get sources. And up until that point, networking was always something that like I felt that I should do, but didn't have time to do because I was too busy putting my head down to getting the work done at a level of perfection and then coming home to family obligations or whatnot. And that's one of my biggest mistakes I think that I made in my career path is to not understand that the networking is the work and you will get so much further in your career by building relationships. It's people that are going to give you your next opportunity. And yes, you have to do good work, but don't sacrifice building relationships to do 110% perfection. You're better off letting go of that perfection, spending some time on the relationships. And that's been another common thread.
0: Yeah, I actually, I think I remember hearing this in one of your conversations, but I actually had a professor who said something very similar. He said that during the day, he actually encouraged us to be spending time talking to people and learning about them and learning about their problems and really building those connections and those relationships and like doing basically like doing work sort of in the evenings. I mean, I'm not assuming that everybody has the flexibility or the like the lifestyle that necessarily affords this. And I think that's actually maybe even I think that's another problem for women, too, is that, you know, you do have I think women tend to take on these family obligations and it's sort of you're, you're trying to do it all and you're trying to do it all really well. But his whole speech, which I thought was really, you know, had an impact on me, was basically that if you're just putting your head down during the day, doing all of your work, that you're, you're, you're missing out on all of that um, networking that's so important and that's what moves people up.
1: That's very, very true. And I think we talked about this a bit with my interview with Tamika Tremalia from Deloitte. We talked about how women do very, very well in school, right? Come out top of our classes because we've been putting our head down and we get that A. And that's just not how the working world works. Like you put your head down and you think you're going to get rewarded and then you don't get rewarded because that's not how it works. I mean, you do have to do a good job. That is important. People will see the quality of your work, and that is an essential part of, you know, advancement. But it doesn't need to be perfect. (laughs) And, you know, you see that if the guys are going out after work and you're like, no, I'm staying to finish this brief and make sure it's perfect, you're actually making a wrong career decision. But it's true that also the point that you made about women and everything they take on, I've written a lot about the whole second shift and how we have this still – Major inequity in the home in terms of the uh, labor of domestic labor, both the household and family uh, obligations that does really constrain women's careers in my opinion, because it's just too much it needs
0: to be shifted per definitely yeah i mean i don't I don't hear conversations about men who are about to have kids, and everybody sort of wonders what's going to happen to their career,
1: mhm. Yeah. Anne-Marie Slaughter has talked about that. She said, we've got to change the conversation. So when a man is having a baby say, how are you going to manage? <laughs> <laughs> and I think there's a lot of guys, especially in, you know, the current generations of parents, they want to be active fathers. It's very different fatherhood now from when it was when I was a kid, you know, they're, they enjoy it. They want to be involved. So, you know, I hope we're moving toward a working world that is more flexible and doesn't basically require that one parent has to downgrade their career in order to manage parenting. You know, the ideal situation is that both parents can have a mix of of career and home and it can be, you know, equal. And I do have hope that we're moving in that direction with kind of the gig economy and, and just the more flexible work environments for everyone, because that's also a big cause of the gender pay gap.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I, I hope so, too. I mean, you know, I'm excited to be done with school and go back to to doing some work out there. But I, I'm really, I mean, I'm optimistic. I'm cautiously optimistic, uh, I guess. So we'll see what happens. Well, good luck. But <laughs> <laughs> well, Sally, thank you so much. And if you could just, I guess, Just to leave us with one last, if people want to, like, read some things you're writing or learn more about you, where can they follow you on the internet? Sure. I'm on Twitter.
1: It's just at Sally underscore Hubbard. I have the womenkillingit.com website and sallyhubbard.com website. I'm on LinkedIn. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Sally Hubbard. I'm working at the Capital Forum. Happy to connect there.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Sally. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. The Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderators are Professors Mark Patterson and Joel Reidenberg. Our Volume 28 Editor-in-Chief is Alex Kirk. Our Managing Editor is Matt Hirschwitz. A huge thank you to Sally Hubbard for being part of this week's episode. Check out the show notes to read her recent article in Forbes and subscribe to her podcast, Women Killing It, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and give us a review. It lets us know how we're doing and really helps our visibility as we continue to grow year after year. For more information about Fordham IPLJ, Please visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org. You can follow us on Twitter at, at @fordhamiplj or on Facebook.com/fordhamiplj. Additionally, you can support Fordham IPLJ and unlock exclusive bonus episodes by visiting Patreon.com/fordhamiplj and becoming a patron for just one dollar. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.